0: chapter 14 of princess mary's gift book this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by pam castillo princess mary's gift book chapter 14 the ebony box by a e w mason no no said colonel von altruck abruptly it is not always true the conversation died away at once and every one about that dinner-table in the rue saint florentine looked at him expectantly he played nervously with the stem of his wine-glass for a few moments as though the complete silence distressed him then he resumed with more diffident air war no doubt inspires noble actions and brings out great qualities in men from whom you expected nothing. But there is another side to it which becomes apparent, not at once, but after a few months of campaigning. Your nerves get overstrained, fatigue and danger tell their tale, you lose your manners, sometimes you degenerate into a brute. I happen to know. Thirty years have passed since the siege of Paris, yet even to day there is no part of my life which I regret so much as the hours between eleven and twelve o'clock of christmas night in the year seventy i will tell you about it if you like although the story may make us late for the opera it will not matter if we are a little late said his hostess the baroness hammerstein and her guest agreed with her it is permitted to smoke asked the colonel for a moment the flame of a match lit up and exaggerated the hollows and the lines upon his lean rugged face Then drawing in his chair to the table he told his story i was a lieutenant of the fifth company of the second battalion of the one hundred and third regiment which belonged to the twenty third infantry division it is as well to be exact that division was part of the twelfth army corps under the crown prince of saxony and in the month of december formed the southeastern segment of our circle about paris on Christmas night I happened to be on duty at a forepost in advance of Noisy Le Grand. The centigrade thermometer was down to twelve degrees below zero, and our little wooden hut with the sloping roof which served us at once as kitchen, mess room, and dormitory, seemed to us all a comfortable shelter. Outside its door, the country glimmered away into darkness, a great white, silent plain of snow. Inside, the camp bedsteads were neatly ranged along the wall, where the roof was lowest. A long table covered with a white cloth, for we were luxurious on Christmas night, occupied the middle of the floor. In a corner stood a fine big barrel of Bavarian beer, which had arrived that morning as a Christmas present from my mother at Leipzig. We were none of us anxious to turn out into the bitter cold, I can tell you, but we were not colonels in those days, and— while the Hauptman was proposing my mother's health, the door was thrust open, and an orderly muffled up to the eyes stood on the threshold at the salute. "'The Air Oberst wishes to see the Air Lieutenant von Altruck, said he, and before I had time even to grumble, he turned on his heels and marched away. I took down my greatcoat, drew the cape over my head, and went out of the hut. There was no wind, nor was the snow falling, but the cold was terrible.' and to me who had come straight from the noise of my companions the night seemed unnaturally still i plodded away through the darkness behind me in the hut the hoftman struck up a song and the words came to me quite clearly and very plaintively across the snow i wondered whether in the morning like that comrade i should be a man to be mentioned in the past tense for more than once a sentinel had been found frozen dead at his post, and I foresaw a long night's work before me. My colonel had acquired a habit of choosing me for special services, and indeed to his kindness in this respect I owed my commission. I found him sitting at a little table drawn close to the fire in a bare dimly lighted room. A lamp stood on the table, and he was peering at a crumbled scrap of paper and smoothing out its creases. So engrossed was he indeed in his scrutiny that it was some minutes before he raised his head and saw me waiting for his commands. Lieutenant von Altrach, he said, you must ride to Roncy. Roncy was only five miles distant as the crow flies. Yes, but the French had made a sortie on the twenty first. They had pushed back our lines, and they now held Ville Effrart and Maison Blanche between Roncy and Noisy-le-Grand. I should have to make a circuit. "'My five miles became ten. "'I did not like the prospect at all. "'I liked it still less when the colonel added, "'You must be careful. "'More than one German soldier has of late been killed upon that road. "'There are francs about, and you must reach Ronsy.' "'It was a verbal message which he gave me, "'and I was to deliver it in person to the commandant of the battery at Ronsy. "'There is a horse ready for you at the stables,' said the colonel, "'and with a nod he turned again to his scrap of paper. I saluted and walked to the door. As my hand was on the knob, he called me back. "'What do you make of it?' he added, holding the paper out to me. "'It was picked out of the Mornay in a sealed wine-bottle. I took the paper and saw that a single sentence was written upon it in a round and laborious hand, with the words misspelt. The meaning of the sentence seemed simple enough. It was apparently a message from a Monsieur Bonnet to his son in the Mobiles of Paris, and it stated that the big black cat had had five kittens. "'What do you make of it?' repeated the colonel. "'Why, that M. Bonnet's black cat has kittens,' said I. I handed the paper back. The colonel looked at it again, shrugged his shoulders, and laughed. "'Well, after all, perhaps it does mean no more than that,' said he. "'But for the colonel's suspicions I should not have given another thought to that misspelt scrawl. M. Bonnet was probably some little peasant, engrossed in domestic affairs,' who thought that no message could be more consoling to his son locked up in paris than this great news about the black cat the wildest rumours were flying about our camp at that time as i think will always happen when you have a large body of men living under a great strain of cold and privation and peril they perplexed the seasoned officers and they were readily swallowed by the youngsters of whom i was one now this scrap of paper happened to fit in with the rumour which most of all exercised our imaginations it was known that in spite of all our precautions news was continually leaking into paris which we did not think it good for the parisians to have on that very christmas day they already knew that general faderbe at pont Noyelles had repulsed a portion of our first army under general manteufel how did they know We were not satisfied that pigeons and balloons completely explained the mystery no we believed that the news passed somewhere through our lines on the southeast of paris news in cipher which was passed on and on to a house close to our lines whence as occasion served it was carried into paris that was the rumor there may have been truth in it or it may have been entirely false But, at all events, it had just the necessary element of fancy to appeal to the imagination of a very young man, and as I walked to the stables and mounted the horse which the colonel had lent me, I kept wondering whether this message, so simple in appearance, had travelled so, and was covering its last stage between the undiscovered chateau and Paris in the sealed wine-bottle i tried to make out what the black cat stood for in the cipher and whose identity was concealed under the pseudonym of m bonnet so i rode down the slope of noisy-le-grand but at the bottom of the slope these speculations passed entirely from my mind in front hidden away in the darkness lay the dangers of ville Effort and maison blanche german soldiers had ridden along this path and had not returned the francs tireurs were abroad yet i must reach Francie, Moreover, in my own mind, I was equally convinced that I must return. I saw the little beds against the wall of the hut under the sloping roof. I rode warily, determined to sleep in one of them that night, determined to keep my life if it could be kept. I crossed the Marnay and turned off the road into a forest path. The with its French garrison, lay now upon my left behind the screen of trees. Fortunately, there was no moon that night, and a mist hung in the air the snow too deadened the sound of my horse's hoofs but i rode nevertheless very gently and with every sense alert each moment i expected the challenge of a sentinel in french i came to the end of the wood and rode on to chesnay here the country was more open and i had passed ville effort but i did not feel any greater security i was possessed with the sort of rage to get my business done and live yes at all costs live A mile beyond Chesnay I came to crossroads, and within the angle which the two roads made, a little cabin stood upon a plot of grass. I was in doubt which road to take. The cabin was all dark, and riding up to the door I hammered upon it with the butt of my pistol. It was not immediately opened. There must indeed have been some delay, since the inmates were evidently in bed, but I was not in any mood to show consideration. I wanted to get on, to get on and live. A little window was within my reach. I dashed the butt of the pistol violently through the glass. "'Will that waken you, eh?' I cried, and almost before I had finished I heard a shuffling footstep in the passage, and the door was opened. A poor old peasant woman, crippled with rheumatism, stood in the doorway, shading a lighted candle with a gnarled, trembling hand. In her haste to obey she had merely thrown a petticoat over the shoulders of her night-dress and there she stood with bare feet shivering in the cold an old bent woman of eighty and apologized i am sorry monsieur she said meekly but i cannot move as quickly as i could when i was young how can i serve monsieur not a word of reproach about her broken window you would think that the hardest man must have felt some remorse i merely broke in upon her apologies with the rough demand for information the road upon your right leads to Shells, monsieur, she answered. That upon your left, to Rancy. I rode off without another word. It is not a pretty description which I am giving to you, but it is a true one. That is my regret. It is a true one. I forgot that old peasant woman. The moment I had passed the cabin, I thought only of the long avenues of trees which stretched across that flat country, and which could hide whole companies of francs-tireurs, I strained my eyes forwards, I listened for the sound of voices, but the first voice which I heard spoke in my own tongue. It was the voice of a sentry on the outpost of Ronsy, and I could have climbed down from my saddle and hugged him to my heart. Instead I sat impassably in my saddle and gave him the countersign. I was conducted to the quarters of the commandant of artillery, and I delivered my message. You have come quickly, he said. What road did you take? That of chestnut and Gagny. The commandant looked queerly at me. Did you? said he. You are lucky. You will return by Montfermeil and Chelles, Lieutenant von Altruc, and I will send an escort with you. Apparently we are better informed at Roncy than you at Noisy le Grand. I knew there was danger, sir, I replied. A regiment of dragoons was quartered at Roncy, and from it two privates and a corporal were given me for escort in the company of these men i started back by the longer road in the rear of our lines and it was a quarter to ten when i started for i noticed the time of a clock in the commandant's quarters i should think that it must have taken three-quarters of an hour to reach Montfermeil, for the snow was deep here and the mist very thick beyond Montfermeil. however we came to higher ground there were fewer drifts of snow and the night began to clear so that we made better going We were now, of course, behind our lines, and the only risk we ran was that a few peasants armed with rifles from a battlefield or a small band of francs-tireurs might be lurking on the chance of picking off a straggler, but that risk was not very great now that there were four of us. I rode, therefore, with an easier mind, and the first thing which entered my thoughts was, what do you think, the old peasant woman's cabin with the broken window? Not a bit of it. No it was monsieur bonnet's black cat had monsieur bonnet's cat five kittens or was that intended to inform the people in paris how many companies of recruits had joined one of the french armies still in the field say general and so to keep up their spirits and prolong the siege i was still puzzling over this problem when in a most solitary place i came suddenly upon a chateau with lighted windows this was the Chateau Viltenous. I reined in my horse and stopped. My escort halted behind me. It was, after all, an astonishing sight. There were many chateaux about Paris then, as there are now, but not one that I had ever come across was inhabited by more than a caretaker. The owners had long since fled, breached walls, trampled gardens, gaping roofs, and silence and desertion that is what we meant when we spoke of a chateau near paris in those days but here was one with lighted windows on the first and second stories staring out calmly on the snow as though never a prussian soldier had crossed the rhine a thick clump of trees sheltered it behind and it faced the eastern side of the long ridge of mont guichet along the foot of which i rode the side farthest from paris from the spot where i and my escort had halted an open park stretched level to the door the house had no doubt a very home-like look on that cold night it should have spoken to me no doubt of the well-ordered family life and the gentle occupations of women but i was thinking of m bonnet's black cat was this solitary chateau the undiscovered last station on the underground road through which the news passed into paris if not why was it still inhabited why did the lights blaze out upon the snow so late i commanded my escort to be silent we rode across the park and half to the door we came upon a wire fence and a gate there we dismounted and walked our horses we tethered them to a tree about twenty yards from the house i ordered one of my dragoons to go round the house and watch any door which he might find at the back i told the other two to stay where they were and i advanced alone to the steps but before i had reached them the front door was thrown open and a girl with a lantern in her hand came out she held the lantern high above her head and peered forward so that the light fell full upon her hair her face and dress she was a tall girl and slight of figure with big dark eyes and a face pretty and made for laughter it was very pale now however and the brows were drawn together in a frown she wore a white evening frock which glistened in the lantern light and over her bare shoulders she had flung a heavy black military cloak so she stood and swung the lantern slowly from side to side as she stared into the darkness while the lights and shadows chased each other swiftly across her white frock her anxious face and the waves of her fair hair whom do you expect at this hour mademoiselle i asked i was quite close to her But she had not seen me, for I stood at the bottom of the steps, and she was looking out over my head. Yet she did not start or utter any cry, only the lantern rattled in her hand. Then she stood quite still for a moment or two, and afterwards lowered her arm until the light shone upon me. "'You are Prussian?' she said. "'A lieutenant of foot,' I answered. "'You have nothing to fear.' "'I am not afraid,' she replied quietly. "'Whom do you expect?' "'No one,' she replied.' i thought that i heard the rattle of iron as though a horse moved and a stirrup rang it is lonely here since our neighbours have fled i came out to see the lantern then was not a signal mademoiselle i asked she looked at me in perplexity and certainly the little piece of acting i thought was very well done a signal she repeated to whom to some man hiding in the woods of montguichet a signal to him that he may come and fetch the news for paris which has lately very lately been brought to the house she bent forward and peered down at me drawing the cloak closer about her neck you are under some strange mistake monsieur she said no news for paris has been brought to this house by any one indeed i answered and is that so then i stretched out my hand and said triumphantly you will tell me perhaps that the cloak upon your shoulders is a woman's cloak and she laughed. It was humiliating. It is always humiliating to a young man not to be taken seriously, isn't it? There was I, thinking that I had fairly cross-examined her into a trap, and she laughed indulgently, and she explained indulgently too. The cloak I am wearing belongs to a wounded French officer who was taken prisoner and released upon parole. He is now in our house. Then I think I will make his acquaintance, I said, and over my shoulder I called to the corporal as he advanced to my side a look of alarm came into the girl's face you are not alone she said and suddenly her face became wistful and her voice began to plead you have not come for him he has done no harm he could not even if he would and he would not for he has given his parole oh you are not going to take him away that we shall see mademoiselle i left one dragoon at the door i ordered the corporal to wait in the hall and i followed the girl up the stairs to the first floor all her pride had gone she led the way with a submission of manner which seemed to me only a fresh effort to quiet my suspicions but they were not quieted i distrusted her i believed that i had under my fingers the proof of that rumour which flew about our camp she stopped at a door and as she turned the handle she said this is my own room monsieur we all use it now for it is warmer than the others and all our servants but one have fled it was a pretty room and cheery enough to one who came into it from the darkness and the snow a piano stood open in a corner with a rug thrown upon it to protect the strings from the cold books lay upon the tables heavy curtains were drawn close over the windows there were cushioned sofas and deep armchairs, and a good fire of logs blazed upon the hearth these details i took in at once then i looked at the occupants a young man lay stretched upon a sofa close to the fire with a wrap covering his legs the wrap was raised by a cradle to keep off its weight his face must have been i think unusually handsome when he had his health at the moment it was so worn and pale and the eyes were so sunk that all its beauty had gone the pallor was accentuated by a small black moustache he wore and his black hair He lay with his head supported upon a pillow, and was playing a game of chess with an old lady, who sat at a little table by his side. I advanced to the fire and warmed my hands at it. "'You, sir, are the wounded officer on parole?' I said in French. The officer bowed. "'And you, madam?' I asked of the old lady. The sight of my uniform seemed to have paralysed her with terror. "'Come, come, madam,' I exclaimed impatiently. "'It is a simple question.' monsieur you frighten her said the young lady it is my aunt the baroness granville you tell me nothing of yourself i said to her and she looked at me in surprise since you have come with an escort to this house i imagined you must know to whom it belonged i am sophie de exactly i replied as though i had known all along and had merely asked the question to see whether she would speak the truth now mademoiselle will you please explain to me how it is that while your neighbours have fled you remain at your chateau it is quite simple she answered my mother is bedridden she could not be moved she could not be left alone you will pardon me said i if i test that statement the wounded officer raised himself upon his elbow as though to protest but mademoiselle de villetonneuse put out a hand and checked him she showed me a face flushed with anger but she spoke quite quietly i will myself take you to my mother's room i laughed i said that is just what i expected you will take me to your mother's room and leave your friends here to make any little preparations in the way of burning awkward papers which they may think desirable thank you no i am not so easily caught mademoiselle sophie was becoming irritated there are no awkward papers she exclaimed that statement too i shall put to the test I went to the door, and standing so that I could still keep an eye upon the room, I called the corporal. You will search the house thoroughly, I said, and quickly. Bring me word how many people you find in it. You, mademoiselle, will remain in the room with us. She shrugged her shoulders as I closed the door and came back into the room. You were wounded, monsieur, I said to the Frenchman. Where? In the sortie on la And you came here the moment you were released on your parole? The wounded officer turned with a smile to mademoiselle Sophie yes for here live my best friends he took her hand and with the frenchman's grace he raised it to his lips and kissed it and i was suddenly made acquainted with the relationship in which these two youth and maid stood to one another mademoiselle sophie had cried out on the steps against the possibility that i might have come to claim my prisoner but though she spoke no word she was still more explicit now with the officer that caress was plainly no more than a pretty way of saying thanks it had the look of a habit it was so neatly given and he gave it without carelessness it is true but without warmth but she received it very differently he did not see because his head was bent above her hand but i did i saw the look of pain in her face the slight contraction of her shoulders and arms as if to meet a blow the kiss hurt her no not the kiss but the finished grace with which it was given the proof in a word that it was a way of saying thanks and nothing more here was a woman who loved and a man who did not love and the woman knew i resumed my questions your doctor monsieur is in the house at this hour no ah that is a pity the young man lifted his head from his pillow and looked me over from head to foot with a stare of disdain i do not quite understand you doubt my word monsieur why not i asked sharply it was quite possible that the cradle this rug across his legs the pillow were all pretenses this young officer might very well have brought in a cipher message to the chateau ville mademoiselle sophie might very well have waved her lantern at the door to summon a fresh messenger no why should i not doubt your word i repeated he turned his face to the old lady it is your move baron he said and she placed the piece she held upon a square of the board mademoiselle sophie took her stand by the table between the players and the game went on just as though there were no intruder in the room it was uncomfortable for me i shifted my feet i tried to appear at my ease finally i sat down in a chair they took no notice of me whatever i was very glad when at last the corporal opened the door he had searched the house he had found no one but madame del and an old servant who was watching by her bed very well said i and the corporal returned to the hall mademoiselle sophie moved away from the chess-table she came and stood opposite to me and though her face was still her eyes were hard with anger and now perhaps you will tell me to what i owe your visit she said certainly i returned i fixed my eyes on her and i said slowly i have come to ask for more news of m bonnet's black cat mademoiselle sophie stared as if she was not sure whether i was mad or drunk but was very sure I was one or the other. The young Frenchman started upon his couch, with the veins swelling upon his forehead and a flushed face. This is an insult, he cried savagely, and no less savagely I answered him. Hold your tongue, I cried. You forget too often that though you are on parole, you are still a prisoner. He fell back upon the sofa with a groan of pain, and the girl hurried to his side meanwhile i had been looking about the room for a box or a case where the cipher messages might be hid i saw nothing of the kind of course they might be hidden between the pages of a book i went from table to table taking them by the boards and shaking the leaves not a scrap of paper tumbled out there was another door in the room besides that which led on to the landing mademoiselle what room is that i asked my bedroom she answered simply and with a gesture full of dignity she threw open the door i carried the mud and snow and the grime of a camp without a scruple of remorse into that neat and pretty chamber mademoiselle sophie followed me as i searched wardrobe and drawer and box at last i came to one drawer in her dressing-table which was locked i looked suddenly at the young lady she was watching me out of the corners of her eyes with a peculiar intentness open that drawer mademoiselle i said it contains only some private things open that drawer or i burst it open no she cried as i jerked the handle i will open it she fetched the key out of another drawer which was unlocked and fitted it into the lock of the dressing-table and all the while i saw that she was watching me she meant to play me some trick i was certain so i watched too and i did well to watch she turned the key opened the drawer, and then snatched out something with extraordinary rapidity, and ran as hard as she could to the door, not the door through which we had entered, but a second door which gave on to the passage. She ran very fast, and she ran very lightly, and she did not stumble over a chair as I did in pursuit of her, but she had to unlatch the door and pull it open. I caught her up and closed her arms about her. It was a little carved ebony box which she held, the very thing for which I searched. I thought so i cried with a laugh drop the box mademoiselle drop it on the floor the noise of our struggle had been heard in the next room the baroness rushed through the doorway what has happened she cried mon dieu you are killing her drop that box mademoiselle and as i spoke she threw it away she threw it through the doorway she tried to throw it over the banisters of the stairs but my arms were about hers and it fell in the passage just beyond the door I darted from her and picked it up. When I returned with it she was taking a gold chain from her neck. At the end of the chain hung a little gold key. This she held out to me. Open it here, she said in a low, eager voice. The sudden change only increased my suspicions, or rather my conviction, that I had now the proof which I needed. Why, if you are so eager to show me the contents, did you try to throw it away? I asked i tried to throw it down into the hall she answered my corporal would have picked it up oh what would that matter she exclaimed impatiently you would have opened it in the hall that was what i wanted open it here at all events open it here the very urgency of her pleading made me determined to refuse the plea no you have some other ruse mademoiselle said i perhaps you wish to gain time for your friend in the next room No. We will return there and open it comfortably by the fire. I kept a tight hold upon the box. I shook it. To my delight, I felt that there were papers within it. I carried it back to the fireside and sat down on a chair. Mademoiselle Sophie followed me close, and as I fixed the little gold key into the lock, she laid her hand very gently upon my arm. I beg you not to unlock that box, she said. If you do, you will bring upon me a great humiliation, and upon yourself much remorse. There is nothing there which concerns you. There are just my little secrets. A girl may have secrets, monsieur, which are sacred to her. She was standing quite close to me, and her back was towards the French officer and her aunt. They could not see her face, and they could hardly have heard more than a word here and there of what she said. I answered her only by turning the key in the lock she took her hand from my arm and laid it on the lid to hinder me from opening it i wore the key on a chain about my neck monsieur she whispered does that teach you nothing even though you are young does it teach you nothing i said that if you unlocked that box you would cause me great humiliation thinking that would be enough to stop you but i see i must tell you more read the letters monsieur question me about them and you will make my life a very lonely one I think so. I think you will destroy my chance of happiness. You would not wish that, monsieur. It is true that we are enemies, but some day this war will end, and you would not wish to prolong its sufferings beyond the end. Yet you will be doing that, monsieur, if you open that box. It seems now almost impossible to me that I could have doubted her sincerity. She spoke with so much simplicity, and so desperate an appeal looked out from her dark eyes ever since that christmas night i can see her quite clearly at will standing as she then stood all the sincerity of her which i would not acknowledge all the appeal which i would not hear and i see her many times when for my peace i would rather not she was pleading for her pride and to do that the better she laid her pride aside yet she never lost her dignity she was pleading for her chance of happiness foreseeing that it was likely to be destroyed without any reason or any profit to a living being by a stranger who would the next moment pass out of her life yet there was no outcry and there were no tears had it been a trick i asked the ladies would there not have been tears but i thought it a trick and a cheap one she was trying to make me believe that there were love-letters in the box compromising love-letters now i knew that there were no love-letters in the box i had seen the frenchman's pretty way of saying thanks i had noticed how the caress hurt her just through what it lacked he was the friend you see and nothing more she was the lover and the only lover of the pair i opened the box accordingly mademoiselle sophie turned away abruptly and sitting down in a chair shaded her eyes with her hand i emptied the letters out on to a table turning the box upside down, and thus the first which I took up and read was the one which lay at the very bottom. As I read it it seemed that every suspicion I had formed was established. She had hinted at love letters, she had spoken of secrets sacred to a girl, and the letter was not even addressed to her; it was addressed to Madame de Villetaneuse; it was a letter which, if it meant no more than what was implied upon the surface, would have long since found destruction in the waste paper basket for it purported to be merely the acceptance of an invitation to dinner at the town-house of madame de villetonneuse in the faubourg saint germain it was signed only by a christian name armand and the few sentences which composed the letter explained that monsieur armand was a distant kinsman of madame de villetonneuse and had just come to paris to pursue his studies and who up till now had no acquaintance with the family i looked at mademoiselle sophie sternly so all this pother about a mere invitation to dinner. Once let it be known that M. Armand will dine with Madame de Villatonneuse in the Faubourg St. Germain, and you are humiliated, you lose your chance of happiness, and I, too, shall find myself in good time suffering the pangs of remorse. And I read the letter slowly aloud to her, word for word. She returned no answer. She sat with her hand shading her face, and she rocked her head, backwards and forwards continually and rather quickly like a child with a racking headache of course to my mind all that was part of the game the letter was dated two years back but the month was december and of course to antedate would be the first precaution come mademoiselle i said changing my tone i invite you very seriously to make a clean breast of it i wish to take no harsh measures with you if i can avoid them tell me frankly what news this letter plainly translated gives to general truchot in paris none she answered very well said i and i took up the next letter ah m armand writes again a week later it was evidently a good dinner and m armand is properly grateful the gratitude indeed was rather excessive rather provincial it was just the effusion which a young man who had not yet learned self-possession might have written on his first introduction to the highest social life of paris certainly the correspondence was very artfully designed but what did it hide i puzzled over the question i took the words and the dates and it seemed to me that i began to see light so much stress was laid upon the dinner that the word must signify some event of importance the first letter spoke of a dinner in the future i imagined that it had not been possible to pass this warning into paris the second letter mentioned with gratitude that the dinner had been successful well suppose dinner stood for engagement the letter would refer to the sortie from paris which pushed back our lines and captured ville and maison blanche that seemed likely madame de velatonus gave the dinner general truchoux made the sortie then madame de velatonus stood for general truchoux who would be armand why the french people outside paris the provincials i had the explanation of that provincial expression of gratitude ah no doubt it all seems far-fetched now that we sit quietly about this table but put yourself in the thick of the war and take twenty years off your lives suppose yourselves young and green eager for advancement and just off your balance from want of sleep want of food want of rest want of everything there are very few things which would seem far-fetched. It seemed to me that I was deciphering these letters with absolute accuracy. I saw myself promoted to captain, seconded to the staff. I went on with the letters, hoping to find an explanation there. The third letter was addressed to Mademoiselle de Villatonneuse, who had evidently written to Monsieur Armand on behalf of her mother, inviting him to her box at the opera, M. Armand regretted that he had not been fortunate enough to call at a time when Mademoiselle was at home. Edwin looked forward to the pleasure of seeing her at the opera. Mademoiselle, I cried, what does the opera stand for? Mademoiselle Sophie laughed disdainfully. For music, monsieur, for art, for refinement, for many things you do not understand. I sprang up in excitement. What did it matter what she said? M. Armand stood for the Army of the Loire, it was that army which had been expected at ville herfart here was a pledge that it would come to the help of paris at the next sortie that was valuable news it could not but bring recognition to the man who brought evidence of it into the prussian lines i hurriedly read through the other letters quoting a passage here and there trying to startle mademoiselle de villatenus into a confession but she never changed her attitude she did not answer a word her conduct was the more aggravating for i began to get lost among these letters they were all in the same handwriting they were all signed or and they seemed to give a picture of the life of a young man in paris during the two years which preceded the war they recorded dinner-parties visits to the theatres examinations passed prizes won and lost receptions rides in the bois and sunday excursions into the country all these phrases these appointments these meetings might have particular meanings but if so how stupendous a cipher besides how was it that none of these messages had been passed into paris very reluctantly i began to doubt my own conjecture i read some more letters and then i suddenly turned back to the earlier ones i compared them with the later notes i began to be afraid the correspondence after all was genuine for the tone of the letters changed and changed so gradually and yet so clearly that the greatest literary art could hardly have deliberately composed them i seemed to witness the actual progress of m armand a hobbledehoy from the provinces losing his awkwardness acquiring ease and polish in his contact with the refinement of paris the last letters had the postmark of paris the first that of auvergne they were genuine then and they were not love-letters i looked at mademoiselle sophie with an increased perplexity why did she now sit rocking her head like a child in pain why had she so struggled to hinder me from opening them they recorded a beginning of acquaintanceship and the growth of that into friendship between a young man and a young girl nothing more the friendship might eventually end in marriage no doubt if left to itself but there was not a word of that in the letters I was still wondering when the French officer raised himself from his sofa and dragged himself across the room to Mademoiselle Sophie's chair. His left trouser leg had been slit down the side from the knee to the foot and laced lightly so as to make room for a bandage. He supported himself from chair to chair with evident pain, and I could not doubt that his wound was as genuine as the letters. He bent down and gently took her hand away from her face. Sophie, he said i did not dare to think that you kept this place for me in your thoughts a little more courage and i should long since have said to you what i say now i beg your permission to ask madame de valetonneuse to-morrow for your hand in marriage my house of cards tumbled down in a second the french officer was monsieur armand with the habit women have of treasuring tokens of the things which have happened mademoiselle sophie had kept all these trifling notes and messages and had even gathered to them the letters written to her mother, so that the story might be complete. But without Monsieur Armand's knowledge, he was not to know. Her pride must guard her secret from him, for she was the lover, and he only the friend, and she knew it. Even in the little speech which he had just made, there was just too much formality, just too little sincerity of voice. I understood why she had tried to throw the ebony-box down into the hall, so that I might open it there. I understood that I had caused her great humiliation, but that was not all there was for me to understand. In answer to Armand, she raised her eyes quietly and shook her head. You wish to spare me shame, she said, and I thank you very much. But it is because of these letters that you spoke. I must think that, I must always think it. No, he exclaimed. But yes, she replied firmly, if monsieur had not unlocked that box— i don't know but some day perhaps oh not yet no not yet but some day perhaps you might have come of your own accord and said what you have just said and i should have been very happy but now you never must for you see i shall always think that the letters are prompting you and monsieur armand bowed i had taken from her her chance of happiness the friendship between them might have ended in marriage if left to itself but I had not left it to itself. Mademoiselle, I said, I am very sorry. She turned her dark eyes on me. Monsieur, I warned you, it is too late to be sorry. And as I stood shuffling awkwardly from one foot to the other, in great remorse, as she had foretold, she added gently, Will you not go, monsieur? I went out of the room, called together my escort, mounted and rode off it was past midnight now and the night was clear but i thought neither of the little beds under the slope of the roof nor of any danger on the road there might have been a franc behind every tree i would never have noticed it until one of them had brought me down remorse was heavy upon me i had behaved without consideration without chivalry without any manners at all i had not been able to distinguish truth when it stared me in the face or to recognize honesty when it looked out from a young girl's dark eyes i had behaved in a word like the brute six months of war had made of me i wondered with a vague hope whether after all time might not set matters right between m armand and mademoiselle sophie and i wonder now whether it has but even if i knew that it had i should always remember that christmas night of eighteen seventy with acute regret the only incident indeed which I can mention with the slightest satisfaction is this. On the way back to noisy le grand I came to a point where the road from Shells crossed the road from Montfermeil. I halted at a little cabin which stood upon a grass plot within the angle of the roads, and tying up all the money I had on me in a pocket handkerchief, I dropped the handkerchief through a broken window-pane. The colonel let the end of his cigar fall upon his plate, and pushed back his chair from the table. But I see we shall be late for the opera, he said as he glanced at the clock. End of chapter fourteen. Recording by Pam Castile.